Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we survey God's story of salvation in the Old Testament, we get to an incredibly important passage, the Ten Commandments. And since Evan read them in their entirety, I'm just going to read the first three verses for us this morning. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if coming here for worship today and singing these songs and performing baptism and preaching from your pulpit were just things that law keepers could do, none of us could stand because every one of us has broken your law and shown that we resist you. I praise you that we are here today, not as law keepers, but as those who have been justified apart from the law by faith. That's our hope. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about the law today, and it's important to know how we're using that term law. When we say law, we can mean the Ten Commandments. That is the quintessential summary of God's law in the Old Testament. So law can mean Ten Commandments. It can also mean the Torah or the first five books of the the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that when Jesus says in the New Testament, all the law and the prophets testify about me, he means the Old Testament. He means the books that are written in the Old Testament. So we can use those interchangeably. But today, instead of walking through the Ten Commandments, I want to take a step back from them and understand their place theologically. How does God use them? What are they for? What do they do in our lives? And if we're asking that question, we realize that the law primarily does three things. It restrains evil, it convicts sinners, and it guides saints. Those are the three things that the law is doing, and we're going to unpack each of those. Number one, God's law restrains evil. You don't have to borrow a copy of Moses' Ten Commandments to know that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying to people or about people is wrong. We don't need a copy of the Ten Commandments because we already intuitively know that. We have a sense of right and wrong, and we're born with it. Paul explains how this happens in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. I'm just going to read for us chapter 2 in Romans, verses 14 through 16. He says this, For when Gentiles, that is most of us, anybody who's not a Jew, who does not have the law, By nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Everybody gets the law. Everybody has it on our hearts. Now, you can suppress the truth. 
You can ignore the truth. You can run from the truth. You can deconstruct the truth. You can relativize the truth. But God's truth in his law has this annoying aspect to it that in those still, quiet moments, it will creep up and, as Paul says, give us conflicting thoughts. Or as we say, we will have a conscience And that can be very unsettling even for the strongest skeptics among us to suppress their knowledge of good versus evil. A few years ago, there was a USC student, a girl attending this church. She was a freshman. She was dating a non-Christian. She was in love with him. And she asked if I would come and meet with them and convert him so that she could marry him and they would live happily ever after. So I said, sure, that sounds great. Why not? So I go to meet with them. And I actually don't like those apologetic showdowns, you know, where you're just like there to argue whether Christianity is true or not. I don't like that because you never really get to matters of the heart. You're just, it's, it's a battle. It's a sword fight in front of this guy's girlfriend. So we're both trying to impress her. And it's just a bad idea. But I did it anyway. And man, I pulled out everything. The historical reliability of the New Testament. We talked about archaeology. We talked about epistemology. And this little slippery 18-year-old punk. I mean, he's dipping. He's weaving. I get him on Rene Descartes. And he's out the door talking about something else. And finally, just out of exasperation, I, the girlfriend this whole time has out a notebook. Like she's taking notes, which just heightens everything. It's like, he'll say something and she writes it down. And I'm like, no, 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 let me, I got a point. Well, out of exasperation, I just, I do a low blow. I'm ashamed to admit it. But I looked at this kid and I said, look, you're dating a girl I care about. She comes to our church. I don't want you to break her heart. What's your moral guiding light in this relationship? Like, what's your stance on pornography, masturbation, adultery, monogamy, divorce, and abuse? And I said that, and the girlfriend shut her notebook <laughs> and turned to him and said, that is a good question. What, what do you think about that? And he answered, because he had to, there's no such thing as objective morality I take my moral cues from the animal kingdom. I about spit my coffee across the table. What? You take your moral cues from the animal kingdom? Do you know what praying mantises do to their spouses? Thank you for reminding me why I lock my doors at night. We've got college freshmen who are running around acting like animals out here. This is crazy. But calm down, take a deep breath, myself included, because I have never met in my life, and I tried to be one, a morally consistent atheist or agnostic. Never met him. If you have one to introduce me to, I'd love to meet him behind bars and see what it looks like to read Darwin and then morally apply survival of the fittest in our world today. I haven't met one. And there's a reason for that, 
Because God writes his law on every human heart that restrains us from being as evil as we might be and we must go to great and grave lengths if we try to suppress that and live otherwise. That's a good gift of the law. And that's the first reason that the law exists. He restrains evil. But secondly... God's law convicts sinners to show us our need for Jesus. This is extremely important. The Ten Commandments are not meant to show us how good we are, but how utterly sinful we are. They are not a badge of pride and self-righteousness, but a verdict of guilt. They're not a ladder to show how high we have climbed towards God. They are a chasm to show just how far we've fallen from his glory. We have that utterly confused in the church and in religiosity. You bump into somebody on the streets of Columbia and you ask them, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, And God said, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And you will hear nine times out of ten, I'm trying to be a good person. Like I try to live by the Ten Commandments. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I'm not a terrorist. I pay my taxes. Like I'm trying to be a decent person. When that person pulls out Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, they are thinking to themselves, I got this. I can do this. I can manage this. And I'm ready to tell God that. That is the opposite reason that the Ten Commandments exist. They are meant to show us God's holiness in such a way that everyone who encounters them will see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of their hearts, and say, I don't got this. I can't do this a single day of my life. There are two huge scriptures in our Bible that show us this second use of the law. Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 3. Two threes, so they're easy to remember. Romans and Galatians are the two New Testament books that talk about the law more than any other New Testament book. And let me give you a sample. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being will be justified in God's sight on the basis of the law. Without the law, without a moral standard, righteousness is relative. If I'm not looking at the law, what I tend to do is look at other people. So if I don't have God's law as the standard, I have my neighbor as the standard, and I can start to think to myself, if I live two steps more righteously ahead of my neighbor who is in all kinds of sin, then I will be justified before God. I don't have a standard, and I'm using the people around me. You guys know the story of the the two men in the Serengeti. They're taking a walk together, and they come upon a hungry lion who is crouching and ready to attack. 
And one man gets down and starts to put on his running shoes. And the other man says to him, what are you doing? Nobody can outrun a lion. And the man says, I don't have to outrun the lion. (laughs) I just got to outrun you. (laughs) That's how we treat righteousness without a standard. I'm not trying to outrun the holiness of God. I've just got to live two steps ahead of my neighbor. But this is what God's law does. It takes the other man out of the Serengeti. We stand before God on the basis of his law by which he will judge every thought and intention of the heart. Now, if we missed all that in Exodus, one of Jesus' first acts in the Gospels, in Matthew, is to look a lot like Moses, to also walk up on a mount like Moses was on top of Sinai, and to deliver the law. And he says to us, you have heard it was said, you shall not murder, but anybody who's angry, Anybody who insults, anybody who calls someone a fool is guilty of the sixth commandment. It's not just a matter of homicide, it's a matter of the heart. And uh, everyone who is bitter or resentful, who hates or who speaks a careless word about another person has broken God's law. He said, I know you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but everyone who looks with lustful intent commits adultery in his heart. It's not just an extra marital affair that we're talking about, but every second glance, every fantasy, every scroll online, every lustful intent falls under God's judgment. Jesus' point is Paul's point. By works of the law, by striving, working, seeking, performing, doing day in and day out, No human being will be justified in his sight. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who know that they have sinned and broken God's law and those who are still pretending that they are not sinning and breaking God's law. Lest we think that the law is terrible because it exposes us in this way, Paul writes in Galatians 3.24, the other great passage, The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So it's exposing our self-righteousness, showing us that we can't do this and, and find God through this. But that's because it's getting us ready for the gospel. Paul says the law, the Ten Commandments, are like a teacher. It's like a a tutor, a, a guardian who takes us firmly by the hand and leads us away from self-righteousness and towards the good news of the gospel that we might be justified by faith and not by works and find his salvation. Any command in scripture can be seen within the second use of the law. So when you're reading in your Bibles, if you're in Exodus 20 and you read, Thou shalt not covet, this is a chance for us to run to God and to say, I do covet. You say don't covet, I do covet. God, forgive me of this. Make me content with what you have given me. Forgive me for my sin. When I'm in the New Testament and I read Paul say, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, I can use that as the second use of the law. God, you say rejoice, but so much of my day is complaining and wanting, and lacking. And I pray that you would forgive me of that and to make me righteous in your sight. 
So God uses the law to restrain evil. He uses it to convict sinners, to show us our need for Jesus. And as we are born again and come into this faith, number three, God's law guides saints so that we might become more like Jesus. That's what it begins to do as we're believers. Now we've already been warned about a first misuse of the law that if we try to use it to justify ourselves, to obey it so that God will be impressed with us, we've totally missed the point and we've totally misused God's law. But there's a second misuse that happens in using the law that when we think because I've been saved by faith and through grace and now I stand on his righteousness and not mine, what do I need with the Ten Commandments? I can throw these things out because I'm saved by grace and I can walk in that grace and I have no need for God's law. I've heard preaching like this that has made the point of every command a gospel presentation. So anytime we hear a heavy command from scripture, the preaching says, God says do this. None of us do that. Jesus has done that in our stead. Praise God he saved us. Now that's a beautiful sermon. I love that sermon. And that's the second use of the law. But if you never make it to the third use, then you have utterly missed the point that once we have been saved by grace, God now wants to sanctify us by grace. He wants to work in us and change us that we will be different people that look like his son. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then in places like Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 1 and Ephesians 6, these New Testament writers repeat the Ten Commandments for us and our instruction to live holy lives. That's why David in Psalm 119 can riff on the beauty of God's law page after page after page. He's a believer and he's saying, I love your law. It is well tried. It contains wondrous things. It gives deep understanding. It provides these broad paths that I can walk in. It is the joy of my heart. If we are a Christian and we try to use God's law to impress God and show our own righteousness, the law is life-taking and it will suck us dry. If you have ever grown up or been exposed to a legalistic home or a legalistic church or a legalistic community, you have experienced your soul being sucked dry with the use of the law that beats you over the head. Don't do this. Don't be this. Don't watch that. Don't be around those kind of people. Don't show up in those contexts. The law becomes a soul-sucking judgment over a believer. But if you have found grace and you know that you stand not on your righteousness but God's righteousness and you go back to the law as a liberated believer, you will find in the Ten Commandments life and life abundant. Imagine if God could really change us so that we don't covet. 
I mean, imagine if God could liberate us from bitterness. Imagine if he would make us wholly satisfied in him and not to be lustful with our eyes. This is life and life abundant. That is the order of events in the book of Exodus. The most important thing you need to hear about the Exodus from chapter 12 and the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 is that they happened in that order. First comes the Exodus and then comes the law. Some of us, when we get out of Exodus, we reverse those two and think that the law came first and the Exodus happened afterwards. We kind of think that God appeared to Israel in the land of Egypt and he gave them a copy of the Ten Commandments and he said to them, If y'all start doing this and get serious about this, you stop hating each other and you start loving each other and you start doing spiritual things, then I'll see that you're serious about this and I will come and I will deliver you from the land of Egypt as a people who's ready to be saved. That is not the story of the book of Exodus. God reaches his sovereign, saving electing hand into a people, the people of Israel who have proved nothing. They've done nothing. And he saves them, delivers them, liberates them. And once they are out of the land of Egypt, once they are declared God's people and have been redeemed, only then does he give them the law and say, this is how you live the abundant life as a liberated people. If Israel ever forgot God's sheer grace, that is why he begins the Ten Commandments by reminding them in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That wasn't you. That wasn't your obedience. That wasn't what you have done for me. That was me. We're going to do this my way. I'm going to do justification first and declare you righteous. And then you're going to live a life of sanctification to bear out that righteousness. I'm going to give you salvation first. And then I'm going to fill you with my spirit so that you will learn to live a righteous life. We're going to do this my way. And the exodus comes first. And then I give you the law. Now I want to close with this. Evan and I were talking this week about the beauty of our faith, the beauty of Christianity and and how God has designed it that it's not just true, but it's beautiful. It's something that is precious to us, just like creation. I know we've all heard agnostic friends and, and Christian friends ask the very important question, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is good, why is the world so bad? And that's an important question that deserves an answer. But every once in a while, can we turn that question around and spin it on its head? What's right with the world? Why is there any beauty and goodness and holiness at all in the world? I mean, how am I looking out over this community of people who are telling me we have been bought with a price Our life is not our own, and we want to glorify God with our bodies. That's incredible. I mean, I'm meeting people in this church body 
who have given up things that they could have to seek things that God would want for them. I've met people in this body who are getting away with sins done in secret and they come forward and say, I don't want to live that way anymore. It's going to hurt, but I want to be holy and righteous. I want to follow God. I've watched people who sacrificially serve other people, even people who are hard to love and serve, people who are never going to show gratitude to them. I can't believe that. That is a miracle. That is supernatural. You get a group of people who when our culture is headed in one direction and saying, I'm living this way and I'm looking out for myself. And then you have this remnant of people that says, that's not for me. I'm going in this different direction and I want something more from life because of who God is and how he's led me. That is a sign to a watching world that God's spirit fills God's people and they begin to be animated by a power that is different from the one in this world. And when you see it in each other, it is beautiful to behold. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is true that I pray that the law would do its triple work. It would continue to restrain evil in the world and make this a place and a country and a nation where it is safe to know you and trust in you. I pray that if we don't know you, we would see our sin exposed by your law and run to you. And I pray that as we find this new life in you, that your Ten Commandments could actually be a breath of fresh air that you want to free us from bitterness and hatred and self-love and give us a new life animated by your Holy Spirit. Do that in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.